What's up, Renaissance? My name is Aswan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I really am thankful today that we get to connect digitally. And so I'm excited to see what God's word has for us. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for who you are. Holy Spirit, would you come and uh, speak to us? Would our ears be attuned to what you have to say through your word to us today? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, um, yo, I got this $20 right here in my pocket. Um, got this nice, crisp $20 bill. I want to give y'all two scenarios, okay? On one hand, let, imagine I took a red marker, scribbled on it. Um, I took a black marker, scribbled on it, crumbled it up, threw it in the garbage. That's scenario one. Scenario two, imagine if I took that same $20 bill, um, I went to a, a very fancy framing place, and I was like, yo, give me your best. Give me your best frame so that I could frame this and put some rose petals on it, put some diamonds around it. Um, and what if I presented you with both of those situations, both of those scenarios? I got a question for you. Does the value of the $20 bill change? We know the answer is no. And, and to keep it funky, this illustration really isn't about the $20 bill. Uh, what it's about is us understanding the concept of value. And what I want you to hear, what I hope you get out of this illustration is the fact that when this $20 bill is in a favorable situation, it's not worth any more than $20. When this $20 bill is in an unfavorable situation, it's not worth less than $20. No matter what situation you put the $20 bill in, the value of it stays the same. And yo, peep this. What's true of this $20 bill is true of you and me. Our value doesn't change when, we're, when we are in favorable or unfavorable situations. Renaissance, I want you to hear this. Your situation does not determine your identity. I wanna say it again. Your situation does not determine your identity. And when we do that, if and when we do that, when we base our identity on our situations, Jesus warns us of this. It's something very clear in scripture. Jesus warns us in Matthew 7 against the foolish mistake of building our lives on situations and circumstances. And it's not me calling it foolish. This is Jesus himself saying that that thinking and that way of living life is foolish. Says it in Matthew 7, starting at verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Well, how does this apply to us? It's simple, building your identity on your situation is like a foolish person who builds their house on sand. When the situations and when the circumstances change, and they will, 
your identity changes with it. That is simply not how God has intended for us to live life. Listen, Renaissance, your situation does not determine your identity. David Benner, uh, who's a psychologist and an author of the book, uh, The Gift of Being Yourself, David Benner defines identity like this. He says, who we experience ourselves to be, the I each of us carries within. I really like that. Benner then also suggests that an identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. And yo, I wanna make sure you hear this. Being deeply loved by God is equivalent to building your identity on solid rock. That's a foundation that's unchanging. It's not moving. And building your life on and your identity on situations, that's like building your life on sand. You're supposed to go visit the beach, not build your identity there. And real talk, um, when you think about who you are, I have a question for you. Do, do you think first, is the first thing that comes to mind that you're deeply loved? Man, one of the greatest truths about you is that you were created in the image of God and you are deeply loved. But let's be honest, that's not the first thing we jump to. That's not the first thing we think about. And I think there's a couple reasons why we do that. Here's one, I think it's easy not to think about that first. See, we've been programmed for years. Um, we don't ask our kids who they wanna be when they grow up. We ask them, what do they wanna do? And so we've had a long time practicing the real, the practicing attaching our identity to what we do. And so, yeah, when you, you don't think about you being deeply loved first because it's very easy to do that. It's kind of ingrained in you. It's habitual almost. Um, the other reason I think we don't think about that first is because it's pretty comforting. We, we can hide behind titles. We can hide behind um, things that we've done and accomplishments and situations. And, 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 and it's difficult to actually address the deeper things that are going on within us. And so we hide behind comfort and, and we fail to address them. And so it's easy uh, to not think about that first. And the third reason is, the third reason we don't think about ourselves as deeply loved first is because you and I are fallen people. As Jordan said last week, most of us think that we are good people that occasionally do bad things. Um, rather, what we should think is that you and I do and say wrong things and we think wrong things because it's in our sinful nature. And it's our sinful nature that causes us to see God incorrectly. It's our sinful nature that, that causes us to think about ourselves incorrectly. Essentially, our sinful nature discolors our lens and we see everything um, distorted from a distorted point of view. I'm hype about our journey through the book of Exodus. I hope you all are as well. I hope you are journeying through it, through it with us. Um, because we are going to see a lot of good things that the Lord points out to us in this book of Exodus. Um, but today's passage, it might not look at first glance, it might not look like it's talking about our identity. But what I hope to do, the connection I hope to make is that uh, when you think about 
setting your life and your identity on situations and circumstances, it is a form of bondage. And Egypt here in our passage is a metaphor for bondage. Um, and we're going to take a look at that. I want to jump into the text. Exodus 1, start at verse 11. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramesses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Now, again, I know this passage might not at first glance feel like it's talking about identity, but when we build and when, we, when we're tempted to build our identity on situations and circumstances, it results in a form of bondage. Now, here's what I want y'all to get. I hope you, you sit up. Um, when you let your situation have complete control over your identity, it's a form of bondage. All right, maybe let me say it this way. When you take the most fragile part of the human experience, your identity, when you take it and you place it on something as ever-changing and unstable as your situations and circumstances, you are left bound by those situations and circumstances. Those situations and circumstances become oppressive and they are ruth they ruthlessly rule over you and there is no letting up all right let me break it down down diggy down down for you and i'm gonna jump on the sword here because your boy is not exempt from this um i wrestle with the temptation to build my identity on situations and circumstances um, but i do think maybe if i can put it into three categories um i think um, we try to build our identity on performance, on status, and intellect. So this, this performance, and it's crazy because in some ways, uh, all the assessments I've taken I somehow end up in the performance category, but I don't struggle with this. I do. Um, see, the, the performance mindset, what's, what it's rooted in, it's rooted in production. It, how much can you produce? So anytime... You're overly concerned with how you look in a situation or how you've done in a situation or what you've done in a situation, it can lead to bondage. And so I, a real story here, I remember having a conversation with my wife back in the day. Um, we were riding in the car, listening to some music. And uh, what, we, what we were started talking about, really, it was a good part of the conversation was like we started our relationship on friendship. And in many ways, she is like melted cheese to me. You know how when you making a grilled cheese, the cheese melts really easily, right? And I felt like uh, in our relationship, we just connected so easily. It feels like I've known her forever. Um, but I remember in the car, she kind of stopped me and she said, it feels like you, you love me dutifully. Like the things that you do for me, you do them out of duty. Like it's, it's your chore or it's your task. And yo, immediately I got tight. 
I was kind of upset. I'm like, yo, why would she not appreciate all the things that I do? And so in typical broken Aswan fashion, I started listing all my stats. Um, I do everything I'm supposed to do. I take out the garbage in the morning. I come home every night. I always speak to her with respect. Um, I'm available to my kids. And years later, uh, in a counseling session, so th there goes show you that we, I needed some counseling. Um, this topic came up and my therapist asked me when this topic came up, he said, why do you get so mad when she makes that comment to you? And at first I'm like, yo, I'm just mad. Just, I'm mad and leave it like that, I'm mad. And in his typical uh, therapist counseling fashion, he said, Aswan, why don't you take the elevator down just one more floor? And when I took that elevator down just one more floor, I realized that what I was really upset about is the fact that whenever she talked about me not performing well in loving her, I felt like it was an attack on my character. And at the moment, of course, I couldn't articulate it like I can articulate it now. But at that moment, what was happening? I was actually building my identity on performance. I was building my identity on the fact that I do things right, that I'm going to get it right. I'm going to love her right. I'm going to be in this relationship right. And I'm going to make sure everything is done right. And if anyone has any critiques or if there's any feedback, I'm taking that personally to the heart. It's almost like you're telling me that I'm a failure. And even preparing for this message, when I, when I was thinking about and rehashing this scenario, I kind of asked myself, yo, do you still wrestle with that? And I had to be honest. And I, even now there's temptation for me to want to preach a sermon right, for me to get every, dot every I um, and cross every T and just and just look on the outside like I got it all together. And quite honestly, uh, when, when, when I do that, um, when, I, when I let my identity be determined by my performance, I'm running the risk of being enslaved and oppressed ruthlessly again and again. Listen to me, if the, if the critiques or even the accolades if they make you feel, uh, if the critiques make you feel like a failure, if the accolades make you feel more like a success, maybe, just maybe, you, your identity is being controlled by performance. And if performance is controlling your identity, then you are in bondage. If you always have to do it right, if you, if you can hide it behind, sometimes you can try to hide it behind being excellent, but if you always have to do it right, if when you put yourself out there, it always has to be the best, neatest version, I wonder if you are allowing performance to rule your identity. Here's the bottom line. Your situation does not determine your identity. Now, that might be true for me, and, and maybe I'm not alone in that, but I'm sure maybe there's some other ways that we could examine this. For some of you, it might not be performance, maybe it's status. Maybe you're okay with criticism and feedback from your peers, but for you, it's the level of significance. When you think about status, the idea that you wanna be known or you wanna be validated by someone else who's significant, 
Um, if, if someone significant says that you're dope, then you feel like you are the man or you feel like you are the woman. And that's oppressive because you have to run around and look for people to affirm you. That's hard. It's, it's an oppressive weight that, that you have to posture yourself just so someone can find you and make you feel significant. And intellect. Um, intellect is the one that I think really hits all of us because intellect, by, by placing your identity in intellect, what you're doing is saying that you know everything, that, that you, you have it all figured out, that when you present yourself, there are no flaws, there are no blemishes, and that's just not true. It's oppressive because, to be honest, you're going to fail. You fail yourself all the time. And to have to keep up uh, the image and to be the one who's the smartest one in the room and to always show that you got it together, you have to work ruthlessly hard for that and it becomes so oppressive. And here's the truth. Your situation does not determine your identity. Now, I'm just giving categories here, but all of this blends together. All of them basically are based in you and I believing that our identity is synonymous with our situation. Essentially, it's believing a merit-based gospel when the true heart of the Christian story is a grace-based gospel. You can't earn the things that God wants to graciously give us. See, the biggest reason allowing your situation to determine your identity is not good is because God has created you as his own. He wants you to be with him. What should determine your identity if you're asking that question? Well, it might sound a little cheesy, but what should determine your identity? It's what God says about you. The one who has his signature on your soul, the one who has created you to be in deep, intimate relationship with him. He's the one who determines who you are. He's the one who, who determines what your identity is. And when we look to the scriptures, we see the apostle Paul. Paul helps us get out of this bondage. Paul helps us walk away from this by clinging to the truth of who God says we are. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 4, he says this, Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son and a daughter. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Listen, Paul is using very intentional language here 
Um, he's talking about the, I, the fact that in heir, when the heir is a child, um, they're basically like a slave because they can't do anything till they come of age. But then there comes a point when um, that child steps into their, their rightful status, their rightful identity, and they become an heir and they are uh, adopted as a son or a daughter. And here's what I want you to hear, Renaissance. Your situation does not determine your identity. God, in his grace and in his mercy and in his love, he put on human nature. He stepped into your mess to come and make you a son and to come and make you a daughter, not so that you could place your identity on the unstable things, on the unstable situations and circumstances that will continue to change he doesn't want your identity to collapse. So he comes in as the solid rock himself and he says, you can put your identity in me. It's like a vault. It's the safest place for your identity to be. It's who he calls us to be. He says that we are sons and daughters. Our identity is shaped and formed in many ways by our life experiences, by our relationships, by culture, by media, and, and even what people think about us. But remember this, your identity is probably one of the most fragile pieces of our human existence. And our identity must be determined by God and God's word. Now, y'all know me, I like application. I'm not just gonna leave us with theory. I wanna close this with a couple, a couple applications. Here's one. First, I love assessments. Uh, I've been in the nonprofit world for quite some time and I love getting these assessments. And when I come home with the results, my wife is always like, uh, how much you pay for that? I could have told you everything in this assessment. And so I am gonna start paying her to go to get my assessments from now on. But I love these assessments. And the last assessment I took, something interesting happened. They asked us, to write 10 I am statements. And these I am statements were, were blank. It was like, just I am dot, 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 dot. And we had to fill it in. And yo, Renaissance, I'm gonna be honest, my first temptation was to write some of my titles. And here's what I want you to do this week um, because it's a practical application. I want you to write 10 I am statements about you. And I mean, actually write them. I don't want you to try to finagle it or try to do something different. Sit down, write I am dot, 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 and fill it in. And the reason I want you to do this is because in order to, to, to grow and develop and to assess where our identity is, you have to know where you are. If you think about Google Maps, you can't, they can't give you an actual destination until you tell them your current location. And so I just want you to take some time this week to find your current location. Write these I am statements and then share them with a friend, share them with somebody you trust, share them with family members, but actually write the statements. Um, that's one, first application. Second, in the description below, there'll be a link for a diagnostic. Um, big shout out to the D DNA groups. You're gonna get this in your DNA groups. The Tuesday morning group is the best. I, I don't know what else to say, but shout out to the Tuesday morning group. Um, but in this diagnostic, uh, you're gonna be able to assess actually where you are. The cool thing about the diagnostic though, is on the left side, it's gonna tell you some indicators and ways for you to identify what you have been putting your identity in. 
And then over on the right side, what's ill about that is it actually tells you where you need to go. And in between, it's just gonna be discipline and practice. And I love this diagnostic because it really does give us a formal tool to assess where we have been placing our identity. Now, I wanna close with this. Um, one of the things that moves me most is in the gospel accounts, when we get to see Jesus interacting with people like you and I. And this story in Luke 8 is really what I wanna leave on your mind. It starts like this. While he was going, the crowds were nearly crushing him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years who had spent all she had on doctors and yet could not be healed by any approached from behind and touched the end of Jesus's robe. Instantly, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked when they all denied it. Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. Someone did touch me, said Jesus. I know that the power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. Verse 48 is key. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Throughout this whole account, she's just referred to as a woman. And then in verse 48, we see that Jesus calls her the direct opposite of what the culture has called her. They have said she was an, uh, an outcast. Um, she was so scared to even be discovered that she touched Jesus because in that culture, it was taboo for her to touch anyone because they would have been made unclean. But what Jesus says in verse 48 is true about this woman and it's true about you and I. Jesus says, daughter, Go in peace. And so, Renaissance, I want us to fight the temptation to go back to slave-like thinking where we build our identity um, on performance or status and significance or on intellect. Why? Because like the Exodus passage tells us, it's oppressive and it's ruthless and it won't stop. And the woman is able to go in peace because now her identity is firmly rooted in the one who created her. And he says, daughter, son, go in peace. Let me pray. God, uh, thank you for uh, what you call us, for how you have redeemed our identity. Uh, God, will we fight the temptation of putting our identity in all the unstable things? Uh, would we be confident that our life in you, our identity in you means that we are deeply loved. God, thank you for who you are and what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.